Tēnā katoa, welcome. This is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for listening in. Today we're speaking with Cameron Douglas. At the time of recording is New Zealand's first and only Master Sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers Worldwide and is the South Pacific Director for the Global Guild of Sommeliers. As you'd expect, Cameron is extensively involved in the wine industry both here in New Zealand and internationally, writing, commentating, judging and advising. If you'd like to find out more about today's podcast or look up our previous podcasts and also see what's coming up, just look us up online, the New Zealand Wine Podcast. But right now, let's have a chat with Cameron. So hi Cameron, nice Hello. to have you along here. It's um, it's our pleasure to have you in the studio. I'm really excited to speak with you and hear about your journey uh, in the wine industry and how you came to be doing what you are doing today. Thank you. So how, how did it all start for you? What Was, was there some uh, key point or was it something that had been um, slowly burning inside you as to why you decided to get into the wine industry? I have to say uh, it's been a very interesting journey so far and a few twists and turns along the way. But if you couldn't imagine back in the early 1980s in Auckland and at high school at that time in fourth form, we had careers advisors and you would visit your career advisor once a year and have a chat about what you thought you might want to do when you grow up or Mm -hmm. leave school. And I'd already decided when I was about probably nine or ten years old that I was going to be a pilot. Right. And filled my life with aeroplanes and models and building things and that was my goal. And I suppose being a bit of a Trekkie along the way helped uh, fuel that dream. And it came to... I think it was about 14 when I met the careers advisor that year and she said, so Cameron, what are you going to do? What's your goal? I said, well, it's easy. Don't need to be here very long. I'm going to be a pilot. And this woman looked at me and she said, Cameron, you're just not smart enough. (laughs) You're not going to be a pilot. You're not going to make it. And she broke my heart and smashed my dreams in about three (laughs) seconds flat. That's horrible. So she completely demotivated me in in more ways than one and uh, to such a point where there was no recovery from that and I decided that maybe I should just leave school and go and get a job. Right. So that's what I did. Gosh. I, I got school certificate in a few subjects and that was enough to land me a job at the ASB bank mm-hmm. so I was a teller f- for the ASB in Queen Street Auckland for a couple of years and but it didn't pay very much and I don't even think banks still pay very much these days but I eventually landed a job working for the Hyatt Hotel mm-hmm. and that was in the banquets department a- a- as a waiter and it doubled my income overnight literally and put me into a social scene that was more evening based Um, in terms of work and then after work it would be sort of nightclubs in the city and things like that so I fell into this wonderful social set of hospitality that I wasn't expecting and of course social life and hospitality alcohol comes with that so Mm -hmm. I became a very good drinker (laughs) and a very good drinker um, of beer really and cheap wine for a long time but ultimately one thing led to another and I developed an interest in cooking mm-hmm. first and having been raised a vegetarian cooking was commercial cooking was something that was very foreign to me but I really enjoyed aromas and smells and flavors and textures and so I took a leap of faith and started cooking I'd met 
my wife by that point in time, and although we weren't married at that point, we were certainly together, and she was working in hospitality already, and I was I managed to get a few cooking roles where I would learn from quite famous chefs. It's sort of the, um, not the My Kitchen Rules and MasterChef kind of thing, it's just oh. cutting your teeth in the kitchen, working under people, yep. but I learned a lot about food, I learned a lot about food preparation. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, sort of fast forward a period of time and ended up moving front of house and working as a table server, a waiter, however you'd like to cook, uh, look at that. And that, that was all fine. And that sort of led to time spending um, living in Australia, living in the UK, coming back, cooking some more. But ultimately, the front of house was really where I felt comfortable hospitality as a sector anywhere in the world presents glass ceilings and you hit the glass ceiling very very quickly unless you have a credential or an ally higher level in whatever hospitality um, setting you're in you can burn out very very quickly Mm. and I needed to make a decision at some point it was really in my early 20s where do I stay in this business or do I get out? And I had to decide what I liked, and I liked people. I liked the experience of service, but I also liked the wine a lot. And there was one particular chap that I worked under at a restaurant in Auckland. Sadly, doesn't exist anymore, but he was so inspirational in terms of the wine that he bought for his restaurant, the customers that he sold it to, and the stories. And I think the underlying message for me really then was selling wine is selling stories. So when when was this? Where are we, where are we up to now? On the gosh, we're up scale? to nineteen eighty mid eighties, right? Okay, something like okay. that. Okay, mid to late eighties. It's a bit of a blur now, <laughs> right? So he so, so he he was obviously um, you know a, a bit of a leader, quite innovative then. And, and he was. He would travel New Zealand buying New Zealand wine. Mm-hmm. Driving it back to the restaurant, right. sticking it on the wine list instead of going, thumbing through a catalogue or yep. having people bring wine to him. Although mm. I'm sure he did that as well. Mm. And I learned a lot from him and decided, yes, that's what I want to do. I actually want to focus on wine. And then that led to a couple of positions and ultimately one at the Sheraton Hotel in Auckland mm-hmm. at their restaurant that was called Partington's at the time. That in turn led to a role five years down the track to a restaurant that's just closed called Vinnie's Restaurant. Right. And I was at Vinnie's for 10 years as their sommelier. Right. And along that journey, I got introduced to the idea of sommelier credentials. And it was via two people. One called my wife, wonderful person, hope you get to meet her one day, and a lady called Lorraine Jacobs who was heavily connected to Cuisine magazine at okay. the time. But she knew a gentleman in an organization called the Court of Master Sommeliers in the USA called Evan Goldstein and encouraged me to get credentials. Mm-hmm. So within a year, I was in Las Vegas taking a course and sitting my exams, and I happened to pass uh, this exam, which was ter- a terrifying experience, really. Why and so? What was... Well, if you can imagine walking into the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas, which is, you know, gold and silver yeah, and... Intimidating and, you know, in itself. And 
very intimidating and 150 people in a room dressed in suits and they're all there for the same thing and they all seemed like wine experts already right and it was a intensive two-day program on what it takes to be a sommelier and what you should know right okay and there was tasting instruction you had to stand in front of 150 people and talk about wine yep and at the end of it you're sitting exams right (laughs) (laughs) and I, I sat the exam I didn't know how I did sat at the back of the room when they gave results and fortunately they called my name and gave me a pin and a certificate to say that I was a sommelier right and so how many people were there doing doing what you were doing at that time, 150. Okay. But there yep. were several thousand already at that level in the USA. Right. But it gave me the fire, the inspiration, and a goal. Yep. And that was to become a master sommelier. I finished my time at Vinny's Restaurant. I'd already landed some teaching roles at Unitech and ultimately at AUT University, which is where I am full-time now. And in 2007, I... Eventually, it took me a while, but I passed my Master Sommelier exams. Oh, okay. So I am still the only Master Sommelier in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. There are a couple in Australia. At one point, I was the only Master Somme in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. But that all changed in 2011. Mm-hmm. And today, I teach full-time at AUT. I run a beverage program. I have a consultancy. I write wine lists for restaurants in New Zealand and in New York. Mm-hmm. I am on the judging circuit as a wine judge. For example, Sydney International Top 100, the Texom International Wine Competition. Next month I'm in London for the Decanter World Wine Awards. Right. And historically here, Royal Easter Show Wine Awards in New Zealand and so on. Right. I receive a lot of wine on a weekly basis at home to review for wine companies here. Mm-hmm. Some international and I write for a couple of magazines. Right, okay. So I'm, I'm a busy boy, but yeah. everything is wine-related. So what I, what I love, I teach. What I drink, I teach. What I travel, I teach as well. So everything impacts on each other. So it's a, it's a happy, happy relationship at the moment. Yeah, very good. Yeah, mm. well, you're busy, busy, doing, busy doing what you love, which is, yeah. uh, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, right, so you've, you, you, you know, you've covered quite a, quite a span there <laughs> in, that, uh, in that synopsis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's... there's um, some interesting things for us to be able to drill down there. I mean, you know, how would you, you know, as we've said, so the, the chap you were working with initially that introduced you to wine and wine and restaurants obviously was, was quite a leader, you know, someone who travelled around New Zealand himself to, mm. to find wine, um, which obviously meant that, you know, he had a dedication to doing that. So um, back then, I mean, how, what was the wine industry like in New Zealand? What was wine like in New Zealand? And how was it? How was it drunk at a restaurant, and how is that different to today? Was there, you know, such an emphasis around? Well, was there still the emphasis around um, food wine pairing, or you know, were there other drivers, or you know, what about even the breadth of wine that was yeah. available then to to serve at a restaurant? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when you think back to the 1980s to mid 1980s in New Zealand, it was pre-screw top. It was before a lot of French and Italian wine were really coming into New Zealand. There, there was wine, international wine, arriving, and it certainly was part of wine programs, but it tended to lean towards some classic Bordeaux, Champagne, of course, 
and not so many champagne houses as there are today available. And everything was closed under cork. It was very rare that you would find a screw-top closed wine back then. And if it was, it was probably Australian Riesling. Mm -hmm. And the service styles back then were still very um, segregated and entrenched in either fine dining so it was white tablecloths with stainless steel or silver utensils. It was slightly larger glassware, really, and bog-standard a la carte menus, entree main desserts, selections. Mm-hmm. Everything was made from scratch. It wasn't that you could buy in a ready-made source like you can today. You have to had to make everything from the beginning. And a lot of the kitchens were semi-open back then, so you could see what was going on, and that's become quite a trend um, now that mm. you can definitely see what's going on in kitchens. So you can hear, smell, everything that's going on. It was perhaps more so back then. And the service style was quite formal, that casual cafe scene that Auckland became famous for I guess ultimately in the very late 80s and 90s is really when it became entrenched, was something new. And so dining was always in the evening. Mm -hmm. There were some lunchtime restaurants. Dining around, say, the waterfront in Auckland was unheard of back then. You had to stay downtown, and that was it. I changed. I actually changed part of that. I, I stand to be credited. If you think Mission Bay in the mid 80s, there was a cafe in Mission Bay called Rubens Cafe, mm-hmm. and it was established. I don't even remember the year it got established, but I ended up getting a cooking job there. And being part of the nightclub scene back in the back in the eighties, there was nowhere to eat other than in the city at three or four o'clock in the morning. Where would you go? You'd either go and get takeout or go home. Mm. So this Rubens Cafe. I decided one night, let's try and we'll open 24 hours a day from Friday through to Sunday evening and see, we'll see how it goes. And the first weekend we opened, we got no one. Right. <laughs> Nobody came through the door after about 9 o'clock at night. The second weekend, we were full and we never looked back for wow. a couple of years. Gosh. So Word spread quickly. Word spread very quickly that mm. you could get soup or nachos or toasted, you know, whatever it was. So, so was the food you started serving there different as well to what you could get elsewhere Gosh, yes. at that time? Right. Well, in, in a sense, in that you, you know that you could get coffee, tea, special coffees, cakes, and some form of substantial food mm. at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's hard to even find that now, really, mm. and, unless you want pizza. Mm. And would, was alcohol? You were serving alcohol as well, or special coffees? Special coffees. Back then, right. the, the you know the liquor lo- the liquor laws were such that you could serve special coffees, and you didn't need any kind of license to do it. Right. And we were BYO otherwise. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And and how about sort of moving on from then then to your time at time at Vinnie's? Um, that was a decade. Um, so you would have seen some change as well uh, in the dining scene? Yeah, absolutely. I, I left the Sheraton Hotel to go and work full-time at Vinnie's Restaurant, and, yeah. that, and I started in 1993 and finished in 2003. It was literally 10 years to the day that I'd started and finished there. And the wine program back then, Vinnie's had transitioned very slowly in, out of a BYO establishment in a very tiny room 
to something that was a lot larger and, and suddenly had a wine list. And the wine list needed to be managed in such a way that it started to have a relationship with the food because the reputation of that restaurant was purely the food. And Chef David Griffiths at the time, he, we actually met when he was working next door at Papillon Restaurant, which is where I got my inspiration from. And the food was such that there were layers of flavors and textures in what he was creating that it required particular wines to help not overpower the food but enhance the food in such a way. Yeah, draw those out. And and I quickly learned uh, on that journey that food actually ended up changing wine more than the wine changed the food. It was a lesson for me. So I had to pay attention to specific layers of flavors and textures and food and what impact that they had on wine Mm -hmm. and it was a trial and error situation every time some new dish came along i wanted to try it and i my wife and i would end up eating at the restaurant in order to try this food there were certain events that would happen at the restaurant Um, a winemaker dinner could be one corbin's wine and food challenge Mm -hmm. back in the day that we we ended up winning that but it was based on the layers of service the food that we served and the wine pairing Corbin's wine of course back then Amberley Riesling for people who know what that is and so it became this exciting little hub of finding great wine to go with great food and that became a massive challenge as well because even back in the early 1990s the wine uh, the availability of wine and the growth of Pinot Noir and the growth of Chardonnay in New Zealand was quite limited. We mm. were still bottling Muller-Turgau back then. Right. And and whilst we could have that on the wine list, we were searching for different things. Mm-hmm. And so when a new producer came along with something from New Zealand, and this is really when Otago was starting to find its way in the wine industry here and Marlborough was well entrenched but wasn't doing Pinot Noir so, so greatly as they are today then it it was a nice journey to be on. So we had to litter the wine list back then with more French and Italian wines than New Zealand mm. because we didn't have that much of a choice. Yep. Now, of course, it's flipped on its head and yes. we don't necessarily need international wines on our lists here. So so for you, every every year, um, every vintage, you would have seen new producers coming coming along then during that time? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's nice to look back and see the growth of, say Pinot Noir in New Zealand mm. it's, it, it's something that is so incredibly popular and in developing a reputation internationally that it's great to see how wine regions have shrunk Pinot Noir and grown one another great variety or they've grown into Pinot Noir at a different region or at a, in a different region and they've embraced it and they're doing incredibly well mm. we're still on a very at the very beginning of our wine journey here Yes, we may be in a in a um, in an age where technology is very much on our side, and handheld devices help us with that. But in terms of the wine journey of New Zealand, we're you know we're a small drop. So early days, yeah, very early days, yeah, yeah. Mm. And and moving on from then, after your time at Vinnie's and until present day, what what are some of the key changes for you in the in the dining experience and and how wine fits into mm-hmm. it now? I think in terms of dining in New Zealand, simplification. Mm-hmm. You, and uh, as I said before, the, the growth of the cafe scene 
um, that still dominates really what's going on today. But it's more relaxed dining with uh, incredibly good food. Yeah. So let's say Meredith's Restaurant, which is a great example where when Meredith's first opened and I developed the wine list for there, we did have tablecloths and we did have um, specific glassware and highly polished utensils. Now that's been relaxed. So there are no tablecloths. The tables are minimalist, but there's more emphasis on the food and the layers and the service and mm-hmm. there, and therefore the wine. So so long as the setting is quiet enough, not too loud, that it allows the food to be the showcase. So when you visit a restaurant like Siddharth, maybe the Grove, although the Grove's quite loud still, but the food is the key draw card for so many people. But they know by going there they're going to have an equally good experience out of the beverage program as well. Mm -hmm. So restaurateurs have to make sure that they package everything properly now. And a restaurateur that thinks that the food is the only thing that matters will not be in business for very long. Right, mm. right. And and so that's interesting. So you see that also as being market-driven then, an awareness in the market mm-hmm. or um, a demand in the market for, for having that type of um, wine menu, having yeah. that type of wine matching available. Absolutely. A couple of other things to layer into the conversation, though, is the availability of pro- international products coming into New Zealand, everything mm. from... Um, prosciuttos to pastas to um, particular ingredients coming out of Italy and France that we were importing there was a flood of it and even foie gras Mm -hmm. when that was you know at the height of its um, popularity so much of that was imported into New Zealand that led uh, New Zealand local producers in New Zealand to start um, giving back to the industry in terms of organic milk didn't work very well originally but then those laws were relaxed around that cheese production in New Zealand has um, become uh, enormous whereas we had to import so many cheeses we still import a lot of cheese Mm. but we do our own cheese very very well running in the background of that in the wine industry was all this incredible research in viticulture and understanding of soils and how climate impacts on what we do And that in turn led to people who were experimenting with organic viticulture, biodynamic viticulture. And as soon as the results of that were seen in the wines, you've got all these multiple layers in this matrix of uh, as naturally produced wines as possible without using the word natural wine or orange wine or anything like that, but naturally produced wines as possible because the environment gave it allowed that to happen and New Zealand's clean green image on top of that once again meant that we were able to take advantage of the idea of sustainability and of course so all these little seeds of ideas really in the late 80s and early 90s started to have an impact on the way in which food arrived at a restaurant and how it was managed and of course we've been there's no shortage of lamb and beef and seafood here as well so Mm. that was always Mm. going to be Mm. very fresh and so the way in which food was manipulated changed the way in which food was prepared was changed right 
Okay. Mm. So, so it was a combination of lots of different factors and layering. Then mm. we had more available from offshore, um, but at the same time we were getting better at doing things locally as well. And so variety um, and um, quality was growing both all, all d- domestically, um, but also from what we were what was available to be imported. Absolutely. Um, and then I suppose another layer on top of that was the education of the of the buyer of the consumer. And, and Absolutely, which. I think when you, when we do go back to to those times and the sort of the decades of the eighties and nineties, the consumer was either a specialist or was told what was good. Mm-hmm. But now the consumer is a lot more curious about what they want to eat and drink, and and they do their homework mm. and they listen. They listen to the radio a lot more. Mm. They listen to you know podcasts. They listen to interviews. They're more well read. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because that knowledge is is a lot more readily available now. You Absolutely, can, you can mm. avail yourself mm. of that. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, so for you now, what what's the process for you of putting a, a, a wine list or a wine menu together? Um, you, you know, for, for for someone sitting in in my seat, it look, looks like a. You know, where, where's your starting point? Where do you start? Because of what we've just discussed, the mm-hmm. availability of food and the variety and, and wine here, both imported and, and, and domestically, domestically grown, where, where do you start when you're pre- preparing? Mm. A, a, is, it, is it just as simple as starting to sit down and, and, and try some of the food and, get what, and see what the, where that's leading you? Or? I, th- I think that's part of, part of the process. I think right at the beginning, my approach is to interview the owner of the business yeah. To find out what their philosophy is, what they're trying to achieve as a business. Yeah. I would interview the chef if that was a different person from the owner and try to understand their background and their philosophy towards food, what they're trying to achieve. And then I would take a look at the bigger picture as to the location of the business, who the competition is, what the competition is serving in terms of food, how that would clash with what the new owner's philosophy is, where their price points are in their food program, how many seats are in the restaurant, how many days or nights they're opening. So really what I want to do is build a picture of that establishment first in order to decide and or help me decide really where the wine program should be launched from. Mm-hmm. Any owner of a restaurant will have favorite styles of wine, that they would want to see on the list and that's that's easy decision for me and but I want to learn a lot about their client base who their target market is and the incorrect answer is everybody yeah <laughs> you know a target market is going to be based on um, their food program their price points um, the style of food and how they intend to attract those customers whether or not they're just simply foot traffic, they're advertising on social media, they're expecting people from cruise ships to come on by or they're close to a hotel or motel or their city fringe or their city centre. All of these things will impact on what wines are going to be appropriate for that particular program and establishment. I always err on the side of caution and less can often mean more. And I think adding to the earlier discussion that wine lists are getting smaller, not bigger. Right. Okay. I, I mean, our choice of wine is growing, but the need to have so many examples within each variety or, or style 
isn't that necessary because at least 80% of the wine list should be generating 80% of the income from that wine list, if that makes sense. Mm. You don't want 5 or 10% of the wine list just generating all that cash flow and having the rest of the wine sitting there gathering dust. They do nothing for the business. So every single wine that I might choose for a restaurant is designed to either pair with food or make money for the business. And I make no mistake in saying to a restaurateur, I'm here to help you make money, but I'm here to make help you develop your reputation as well. So I would initially put together a very small wine list for discussion, and then based on their feedback and or their level of enthusiasm or otherwise, we would grow that wine list. Mm-hmm. So as an example, a 40-seat restaurant, which would probably be about average for City Fringe or otherwise, sometimes bigger, I would aim to have a wine list that would be no more than 80 wines, two wines per seat, Mm -hmm. and a growing number of wines by the glass would have to happen for current obvious reasons in terms of drink driving, but also that people are more interested in exploring and experimenting Mm. with wine rather than having three glasses of the same thing. Yep, yep. So it's about learning what their business is all about in order to create the right wine program for them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, being available three, six, and 12 months down the track for when changes are required. Right. Yep. Okay. And and, and tying that in, in with their menu and, again, around seasonality, because, you know, you're seeing a, a more um, restaurants going with maybe what's seasonally available, and that can even vary week to week and what they what they might be putting on totally. the food menu. I would say a minimum of four times a year at Meredith's restaurant. I'm there for two or three hours at a time, mm-hmm. tasting all of the new food items, rechecking some of the old ones, and experimenting with the current wines to make sure that there is something there that can be specifically paired with the food. I write the script for the staff so mm-hmm. that they understand why that wine is chosen with that food. Yep. And it's always that the wine plays second base to food at an establishment like that because I'm very well aware that people come for a food experience at Meredith's restaurant but the wine should always be just about as good not right. quite as good but <laughs> just about so that the food is the hero the food right. in, in, a, in a place like that yes. other establishments the wine and the food are the hero equally mm. okay. and that it's okay to have a little bit of a clash going on in the palate mm. because people are seduced by wine and seduced by food at the same time. Right. But if you're a foodie going to a foodie's restaurant, the wine needs to be just a little bit in the shadow. And you mentioned before about, I think your words were, food changes wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how does how does that impact your decisions? So when you're when you, when you're sampling a menu, um, do you do you have you learnt um, with particular wines, you have in mind how they might be changed by what you're tasting, if that mm, makes sense. Mm. Have you? Yeah. If, if, I guess I think about food. When I look at a plate of food or I'm reading what's on, going to be on a plate of food, it's a bit like a graphic equaliser on, on, an, on an old-fashioned stereo where I'm looking at particular ingredients and I go, that's a quiet ingredient because it's only there to enhance a particular flavour on the plate. Or that ingredient there or that spice is really quite loud. It's high up on the dial and that's going to have a high impact on the palate. So I have to work from a structural standpoint first. 
is there anything acidic in the dish, yes or no? If so, how does that um, impact on the palate in terms of that volume? So vinegars, garlic, raw onion, acid, Mm -hmm. like lemon juice, acid, that kind of thing. If, If it meets a medium level on the palate, then the wine has to meet that halfway. So any obvious structural elements in the food must be equal by the same structural elements in the wine. Ah, okay. So high acid food, you definitely need a high acid wine right. because you need to either calm the acid down in the food with the wine or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So what we were saying before where food changes wine, if you have a simple piece of fish like a John Dory and the kitchen will invariably send it out with a wedge of lemon because lemon, lemon behaves like salt Mm-hmm. And both salt and lemon reduce acidity in wine. So customer would squeeze lemon all over their fish. If not, they'd put salt or both. And that reduces acidity in wine. So by doing that, the wine is changed, making the fruit elements or the alcohol or the oak be more pronounced. So if the oak is more pronounced as a result of that, I'm hoping that there is an element on the plate, or I know that there's an element on the plate that's going to work with the oak as well. Right. So I have to decide what is the strongest thing on the plate in terms of texture, flavor, and where does everything else sit in, in between that. Right. So there's always four things that is, are a rule of thumb with wine and food pairing. Acidity, weight and intensity, um, complexity, and then other things can come into play like theme and extreme. What, so, what do you mean by, by those? By those. So... If I gave you a glass of 2015 Sauvignon Blanc out of Marlborough, we would both experience a wine with high acidity. And any food that happened to have acidity in it would help reduce the acidity in that Sauvignon Blanc. The weight of Sauvignon Blanc is always light to moderate, Mm -hmm. mostly light. And so I don't need any food that is any more than lightweight itself. So you always work weight for weight. If you want to do true wine and food pairing, light food, light wine, heavy food, heavy wine, Mm -hmm. because one, the structural elements have to be equal, or at least we work towards that. How intense is the food? The more intense the food is, if you're thinking of heat spices versus fragrance spices, or intense flavors and sauces and things like that, then the wine has to be of equal intensity as well, so that it doesn't stamp out the wine. It doesn't Mm. overpower it to the point that you don't taste the wine anymore. So intensity has to be as equal as possible. Where it changes is complexity. If you've got a food that has, or a dish that has multiple layers of flavors and textures, and again, Meredith is a good example, or food out of the Grove or Siddharth, some hotel menus, uh, chefs that pay attention to detail and combinations of flavors, there is a lot more complexity on the plate and they want the customer to experience small experiences or uh, or small waves of um, food and textures hitting the palate across that dish. The wine can't compete with that. So complex food, simple wine. Less complex food, more complex wine. Right. So that you are changing the equaliser on the palate of each food and wine combination. Then it comes to uh, theme, right? So I've got acid, weight, intensity, complexity. Is there a theme to the dish at all? No. 
It could be as simple as classic seafood, New Zealand seafood cuisine. Or it could be classic Italian. Or it could be light, lightweight, fun and interesting. It could be winter, hearty, mm-hmm. dense, rich food. You can find wine that just meet that basic criteria as well. So you, you've got a summer salad with you know, tomatoes and balsamic vinegar and uh, endive lettuce and things like that in there. And that's fun and interesting and got some reasonable peppery components to it. The balsamic vinegar is the number one thing I have to match the wine to because right. it has the highest impact in that dish. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I'm matching to one in- the most intense ingredient on the plate first, texture second, weight and intensity follows, that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Again, if acidity is involved and vinegars are like acid, I need a wine with equal acidity to comp, not to compete, but to at least, at least meet it halfway. We've just been chatting with Cameron Douglas, Master Sommelier based here in New Zealand. That's part one of our chat with Cameron, so be sure to check in shortly for part two and have a look online under New Zealand Wine Podcast for some of our other great episodes. Thanks for listening in. Hey, Kona mai. Bye for now. <laughs>